Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club podcast. I'm one of the triplets that was forced out in a very dark and disturbing labor. And with me, as always, is my other twin, Jeff Goad. Warrior, sage, and witch. Here we are. <laughs> and our sister for at least this afternoon, Little Red Dot. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And <laughs> hey, I will Dot. definitely take our, our witching sister role uh, gladly. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Hoy, am I the warrior or am I the sage? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little stupid, so maybe I'm the warrior. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And Little Red Dot. Well, a Little Red Dot, your, your, or Dot, your bio is actually kind of warrior-ish, though. So. <laughs> I mean, I will also don a sword. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so Dot is a Twitch producer for, uh, the Twitch producer for Cobalt Press the producer for the podcast pod by night and part of many other streaming productions welcome dot thanks okay so dot tell us a little bit about your secret origin how did you get into gaming oh um well see i was a closeted nerd in south georgia for a really long time so that's actually how it started um i could go way deep like i remember in reading dune in the eighth grade and that being like a big um like eye-opening extravaganza but i didn't really get to tabletop until much later in my life i've been playing tabletop about 12 years now i think mm-hmm. uh when i was an undergrad cough cough years ago um it was actually my fight combat teacher uh, who was like, you're really great with a sword. Would you like to come roll dice with some of the other students in the park on Sunday where we play fight with swords? And I was like, <laughs> that sounds awesome. Uh, and so here was, you know, a little uh, art student who was like a budding art student who had come out of South Georgia and had all of these nerdy ideas that nobody ever let her like live out to their fullest because everybody thought I was just a black sheep. Uh, and um uh, yeah. And then I showed up at the park and we were like rolling dice and telling these crazy stories. I was this dwarf paladin. She had this big beard and she was amazing and she carried an axe and she was so badass. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a huge it was a huge ordeal for me. And then when I got done with undergrad, I, I moved out, you know, and I went away and nobody I knew played D&D. So uh, this is how GMs are made. <laughs> and so that you know that's 100. how gms are made and then i was like i have to play and i've got to find people and right. uh, i yeah, do remember Gabba, my f- Gabba, one of us you know? yeah right <laughs> i remember my first time uh looking for a group i ended up at a table with a bunch of uh georgia tech dudes who were all about the number crutching and i was like what is this horrible thing you have done to my favorite game <laughs> i just like remember it so vividly they're like yeah we stack this thing here you do this thing. it was just so meta and so i only was at that table one time and that's what really pushed me i was like that's it uh anybody i can find that'll sit at a table and so i i was in a, a an internship program at the time like an arts internship program with a theater here and i i started scouting i was like what actor in here wants to play something <laughs> at my table and so i kind of gathered a group and started uh started that way and so and then I just grew right over time and over time. And I started playing more and more stuff. I GM'd pretty much all the time. And then I had the lucky uh, opportunity about f- four or five years ago. Um, some of my friends here in Atlanta were like, we want to just turn a mic on and record our games. And I was like, cool. So we there started a podcast called North by Northwest. And that was my first delve into like making content online um, using like tabletop as a means of performance and entertainment because I had been doing it 
on the side forever. And I had been in the performance and entertainment industry for years. And then my two worlds kind of collided and it was really like pushing a snowball down a hill. It just got right. bigger and bigger and encapsulated more and more. <laughs> and I had more fun uh, and we haven't hit the bottom yet, y'all. So uh, that's how I got here. <laughs> that's awesome. So, I mean, you're working for Kobold, which was uh, originally known for doing um, Pathfinder stuff, mm-hmm, so, which correct. is more crunchy, right? So Correct. Um, so have you now sort of like, um, sort of made your peace with the crunchiness to a certain extent? Yeah, you, I think over time you do. And you know, there's actually, I think I've learned to like crunchiness in its own way. When I went back to business school and learned to deal with my horrible relationship with numbers, uh, I came out the other side in a bit of a better place with certain games. So like, um, a lot of people find Free League rather crunchy, right? Cause it's a mm-hmm. dice pool system. A lot of people find VTM rather crunchy technically because you got like two, uh, pool systems. So right. like. Yes, I I have uh I have learned to find the right crunch for me, mm-hmm. uh you know not too crunchy um but just crunchy enough uh like I like my cereal and my bacon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now it sounds like a lot of your gaming is kind of rooted in kind of what they call more trad gaming. Like, do you have a lot of story gaming experience or indie gaming experience as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I worked for um, I used to do some gaming for Magpie, so I've mm-hmm. run Magpie games before. Um, and I work as kind of a affiliate with uh with evil hat because fate is oh. actually my favorite system which other ah, people okay. also find uh, i wouldn't call it crunchy but a system that is not as um easy to dive into which is so funny because there's like there's nothing to it it's all it's all comes out of your head not a book which is why people yeah. panic anyways right. uh but i 100%. love fate, so i work a lot with evil hat um i am currently working with somebody i can't talk about i'm getting ready to do my first major writing and cool. publishing yeah. thing uh, for TTRPGs. Thanks. Uh, yeah, the NDA says I can't say anything even in like weeks from now when I think this is going to drop. So uh, even in, even Future Dot can't say yet. <laughs> right. uh, so you'll have to just keep watching so Future Dot can can fill you in later. But yeah, I um I I've worked in oh gosh I've done so many things. You know I started out in D and D and then. All of the stuff that I self-produced on my own Twitch channel, which is really actually how I got started, none of that is D and D. I've worked. Um, I'm going to be working with one of my favorite graphic novel groups, um, Rickety Stitch, uh, which is like one of the great. First off, great graphic novel. The art is superb. It follows this skeleton. Uh, this like skeletal bard as he goes through uh, the land of uh, Im, and it's all about him and his best friend who's a gelatinous cube and it's about being <laughs> it's like the monster perspective and they like go That's through and they're so just cute. trying to like live their life so like anyways it's so wonderful it's can such he, a different can perspective can he hit a ride inside the gelatinous cube yeah it is one gelatinous <laughs> cube friend like it's so great so it's all about this but they the the creators of Rickety Stitch and I, y'all when I say like I'm a fan I mean like I love me some Rickety Stitch um they have created a, a tabletop that's like set in the, the, the land of Im. And so um, there I will be this summer will be kind of debuting that uh, on on my channel. So I work a lot with new game designers. One of my best that's friends cool. here out of Atlanta is a game designer, right? Uh, Craig from Nerdburger Games. Mm-hmm. He put out, um, uh, well, he's done a couple, uh, but he, I think his big one is his Capers. That's the like 1920s superhero uh, or 1920s gangster superpowered one. And it's all played with cards, not dice. Um, so I work a lot with game designers kind of across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I think Cobalt Press has brought me on because they're actually, you know, the, the big shift has been away from Pathfinder right. over the last few years, right? And so they have, um, we just dropped the Midgard World Book in 5e, uh, which was is, is huge. That's like a 400-page world book that has been converted to 5th edition now. Um, so, uh, yeah, so they brought me on because, one, I, I love producing, uh, and I love producing actual plays, and uh, they're at that point now where... 
Cobalt Press has been around. We celebrated their 15th anniversary just a few months ago. They have been producing content for 15 years. You know, Wolfgang started at Wizards, right? Uh, right? And then Cobalt Press. Way back yeah, when. exactly. Yeah. And uh, Cobalt Press was started off of a, a blog, literally, like coins into a tip jar on a blog before that was like a cool thing to do when we still had to like share a phone line. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. um, so like uh, that that's... um. It, they, Co- Wolfgang and Cobalt Press have been at it for so, so long. So I feel uh, really lucky to be able to come in because I know as a GM at any of my D&D tables, I've, I've used Cobalt Press material for years. Their beast, uh, right? All of their magic. And they have some really great. And they've, they've written for Call of Cthulhu. Right. right. They've partnered I mean, for Call of Cthulhu, which a lot of people don't know. Um, I feel like they've written for seven. There's like seven, if I remember, seven titles. Pathfinder, pretty much all of the D&D Call of Cthulhu, and I feel like there's one more I'm missing. But they've written for quite a few, and now most of most of their focus is original content uh, around fifth edition. Right. Um, I mean, they've just so. always been so strong. Hopefully, they they have such a body of work that's um, not necessarily system dependent. That hopefully that they will weather yes. a lot of these changes that are going on in the industry because their world building is so you know interesting. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, I, I completely agree. I mean, gosh, so many books, and like they just they they also drop things that I think a lot of other companies don't think about, like uh, handy guides, like not just like block stats for monsters and magical items and things, but like they just put out one um, which is Cobalt Press's guide. I think it's called the Guide to Monsters, and it's actually a series of essays by like people in the industry um, around being like a GM at the table and how to use monsters. And so they give these really helpful things too. I think that oftentimes don't like guides that don't make it to the forefront of, of what we're doing. And that kind of information is valuable no matter what kind of system you're playing, Mm -hmm. you know? And so uh, to go back and you are, uh, you are a time traveler and your very first (laughs) book is about seeing things that you can't talk about, which is, or that you mentioned, which is Dune. Yes. Yes. (laughs) What is your background in, reading fantastic fiction uh you are there in south georgia no one mm-hmm. else is into what you're into they right. are not um so actually uh, i'll tell you how i got started in sci-fi because i was much deeper into sci-fi i found fantasy much later in life mm-hmm. um right like of course the hobbit was probably my first fantasy book uh as it was probably the only thing i could get right at the library and you have to understand that i grew up in a town y'all where we had we were the only county in the state of Georgia without a library funded by the town. Wow. It was a single, I remember it was a single room with a desk in the middle and they used to do like summer camp stuff, but there was no, there was no access to this kind of things. Like getting comic books and all that kind of stuff was not something that I really had access to. So I had to dig for that kind of stuff. My comic books came from the barbershop there you go. In town. Uh, I used to go with my dad. He was in the military. And so he always had to have his hair like perfectly cut. And all of that kind of stuff. And so he uh, he would take me and I would sit there. Yeah, I would sit there at Mr. Larry's bar- barbershop while my dad got his, his hair cut every two weeks. And I got to read Mr. Larry's comics. And then he'd give me five cents uh, to get a bubble gum out of the machine. Uh, but I, my mother actually was a science fiction reader, which is very interesting because she's also a small town girl. Uh, but she introduced me to D- Dune at a very young age. I mentioned that earlier. And um I was diagnosed with childhood cancer when I was seven. And so I spent a large part of my childhood very ill away from other children because I had an immune deficiency problem and just like I couldn't be around other kids. And I remember my 
I got from the hospital that one of those t- remember those tiny TVs that had the VCR built in. Sure. They, y'all, they were like they were like what ten inches max, yeah. if that yeah. eight inches. Right. Um, I remember getting one of those. My mom's like, I think you're old enough. I was seven, uh, which means I probably wasn't. But she was like, <laughs> uh, I think you're old enough to watch these movies. And she gave me the original Star Wars trilogy on VHS. Oh, um, nice. And I remember watching them on repeat, like over and over and over. And and she was like, okay, you're going to burn these VHSs out because yes, that's a thing, y'all. Uh, and then of course she was like, so why don't we find you some other sci-fi to read? And so she gave me some books that I could like handle at the time. I probably read uh, Dune not understanding 85% of it the oh, first time I read it through, right? And those kinds of things. But uh, I read them and I read them and then read them. And I was that black sheep that made her book report project in the eighth grade on Dune. And everybody was like, who is this crazy child? <laughs> um, but uh, that's kind of how I got started. And then I found fantasy much, much later on as kind of a branch off of that, which is uh, what I find so interesting actually about the book we're going to talk about today mm-hmm. um, right. because of that. Um but yeah, so that I guess that's kind of how it got started. I've got, you know, now I'm a huge fan. I read a lot of Philip K. Dick. I'm super duper inspired by Philip K. Dick as a writer, um, as a, a poor, unfortunate lost soul of mm. what it's like to be an artist right. uh, hated by the society in which you create for. Um, but I think his his books and his works and, and short stories, um, uh, they have made a lasting impact on right. the way that we view science fiction. Um, so he became a big, a big uh, to read of mine. Okay, is there a book of his that you would recommend for gamers, or uh, another book oh. that you would recommend out there? Uh, oh that you well, really okay. Love? So Philip K. Dick, of course, you know all of your uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? Mm-hmm. That was one of his original books. Uh, Man in the High Castle has now been made into what I consider right. a rather lackluster television show. Yeah. Um, so you can hit his big ones, but my favorite Philip K. Dick novel, and I think it is, there There are actually two, and I'm not going to remember one of them because you put me on the spot, but I'll remember the other, I'll remember the first one. It's called Ubik. Ubik. Uh, U-B-I-K, okay. Ubik. There you go. Uh, it's actually part of a, like a novella series of his first works. Um, you can actually buy it, I think, with like Man in the High Castle, Ubik, and this other book, which I'm not going to remember. Anyways, um, and but Ubik looks at like, of course, it's Philip K. Dick, so it's in the future. And it's about uh, we have found out we have figured out a way to put those that have died into a stasis in the last moments of the electric activity in their brain. So you can still talk to the dead for a period of time. We put them in this like slow stasis of their brain, slowly Mm. shutting off. Um, And it's kind of about something that happens when one of the minds that's linked to this mass computer system gets loose and starts messing with reality Mm. um and it's one it's it's haunting and it's wonderful and ask a lot of questions that i think was way ahead of anybody of questions that anybody was asking at the time so um i uh i I highly recommend that i actually highly recommend that whole series because the other one and i'm not gonna remember it actually is like it's also very cool and very tabletop like very something you could play off of which is um World, the world is overpopulated and we have started populating Mars as a place for like farming and terraforming. Surprise, surprise. But people can't live on the surface. So mm. we live below ground. So they build these like single bunkers to put people on. But what they actually do is they ship off like prisoners and to people we don't want on Earth off to Mars to like serve. So Mars is Australia, basically. So basically Mars is the Australia of the future. And so they ship these people off and we follow this one man who gets there. And what they find out is to keep people happy and complacent in what is basically an underground prison cell. They 
they sell them this corporatized like dollhouse, like these these like your Malibu Barbie style type thing. But it's like and you can get all the bits and pieces and parts. And then they take a drug that allows them to like commune with this second life, which is actually just a series of toys. And they they basically trip their way through their existence on Mars, um, sharing it, living their life through this like Malibu Barbie it's it is nuts it's nuts and wonderful and before this is out i'm gonna remember the name of that book i promise y'all right, at the so end just, i will just, find it for just you just drop it in like any random like so those are um, books that you highly recommend for our gaming audience to look at yeah. something to, to draw from great but you yeah. also had a very specific recommendation as well in addition to that correct i i work at a comedy house um i don't take anything in life too seriously uh so the first major fantasy book outside of the hobbit that like super impacted me um is one that i will i will highly recommend i any y'all should read it it should be in our lineup like any, everybody should read this book if you play DD. it is called orconomics a satire orconomics orconomics and it follows an orc who is part of a corporatized fantasy structure so like what our DD world is where we like go out and kill goblins do this thing it's very corporatized and so like killing goblins like, like however many goblins you bring in is like pay um and it follows an orc who is basically part of this like he's tried to stay outside the corporate structure and he can't and he for whatever reason becomes enamored with a goblin that he chooses to save instead of kill and it's this ridiculous satire of what we consider the like fantasy world structure and it breaks it down and, and totally adds this like new age corporate spin on it and it's it's hilarious right. it's the we, first time i ever read a fantasy book and literally was like ch chuckling out loud there we go Amazing. And it's by jay zachary pike i just looked it is yes, by jay yes. uh, yeah, yeah yeah by uh by jay zachary pike yeah perfect and with that, the reveal for the book, which I don't even think we mentioned before. Oh, we haven't. <gasps> awesome. No, it's great. Uh, is Andre Norton's Three Against the Witch World. And uh, okay, which editions do we all playing with to this week? I've got the 1983 Ace Paperback. Okay. And it's got this John Pound cover. And here we've got the, the, the three siblings oh. standing side by side. We've got our dart gun, our sword, and our sorcery. And then there's this like, horned skull in a blaze of flames in the center. Yeah, I want that painted on the side of my 80s van, please. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. exactly what it, it needs to be airbrushed on the side of a van somewhere. <laughs> yeah, or it needs to be like on one of those cocaine mirrors that you can get at the state fair. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's like backlit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. Amazing. And what about you, Dot? Okay, so I got a hardback copy. Um yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a reprint of 2004 is when this one is. And what's really cool, and the reason I bought this one, um, well, first off, let's take a look at this jacket cover. So this I mean, is a much wow. more updated like art cover. Mm -hmm. This looks like, um, you know, hand-drawn art from Lord of the Rings. Like he's right. got like, it's 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 a lot more uh, uh, finished and hyper-realistic. Mm -hmm. uh, but like, can we talk about how awesome she is? Like, I love that she's not smiling. No, she's definitely I like ready to cast. I love that they didn't like, yeah, that she's not revealing any cleavage whatsoever. She just looks like she is pissed at the world, and I dig that hard. Like, she looks like she is here to fudge your day up. And it's interesting. They put that. They put her in front, and then what is mm -hmm. clearly the the sage brother in the middle, and the warriors all the yep. way in the back, right? So yeah, yeah. There there were some definite um, important choices. Yeah. I thought mountains in the background. Mm -hmm. 
You know, uh, but this one I bought in particular because it came with an introduction from Mercedes Lackey, oh, which is a pretty huge. And um, when I decided to go and buy it, because this is the kind of nerdy, one, I was like, oh, my God, which copy do I buy? Um, and everybody suggested this one because of her introduction. Um, Very and cool. so I yeah, so I actually made sure to read through the introduction. Um, look, I look, I even did my homework. Highlighted oh, she it, did a jab. Um, I'm <laughs> an academic at heart. Um, so uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you, did you highlight yours too? Yeah, <laughs> I love it. Um, so I, I know everybody, some of you at home are cringing because I highlighted in my book. Well, and uh, mine's even like a, a like a retro paperback. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You can get this one at pretty much any bookstore. But yeah, so um, when we start talking about it, I, I'm sure I will reference her her introduction. There we go. Very her cool. introductory essay quite a lot. Uh, but it was uh, that's the reason I bought that copy, um, and not and not a paperback because I thought about the paperback. But I was like, no, I really want to read this introduction because everybody talked about it online as being really important mm-hmm. um, to like framing Norton's work. Great. And I have the 1972 printing, the Harry Boardman oh, painting, that. with this crazy, the crazy werewolf there. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Those are cool. Yeah. With like lightning coming out of the sky. Yes. Yeah, they're definitely in loincloths. That's an yeah. interesting choice. Yep. And it's funny because they reversed <laughs> it because it's, it's well, I guess he was in uh, like buckskin at one point, right? Buckskin. Yeah, right. you're right. You're right. Yeah. Uh, but he's in the werewolf yeah. in this, in this port. And then uh, the sister looks quite witchy, Kathea. So she looks quite witchy. Yeah, there. she does. Kathea looks very young. All right, so uh, we're about to talk about the book as book. But before that, Jeff, do we have a Hygaxian word of the week? We do indeed. And our word of the day is... Ensorcelment. Ensorcelment. And ensorcelment was found on page 77 of my edition. And it says, There was that here which could evoke glamoury the visionary state into which the half-learned and any magic could easily slip to be lost in their own visions. And I wanted no such ensorcelment. And ensorcelment means the state of being under a spell or an enchantment. So that is our Hygaxian word of the day. Do we get, like, points if we use it throughout the rest of the podcast? Absolutely, Absolutely. yeah. (laughs) Or the points don't matter. (laughs) Or it'll be like Pee-wee's Playhouse, where every time somebody says it, we all go, ah, ah. <laughs> you get more points if you use it wrong, but it sounds plausible. Oh, oh! Now this is a game I will play. Uh, <laughs> the improviser in me is like, "Don't give me a funny game to play live." <laughs> Must not. <laughs> there you go. All right. So uh, you have thoughts. What are your thoughts, or what are your yeah. many thoughts? Well, so there's a part of me that almost I'm going to go back and read the first book because, of course, this is not mm-hmm. the first book, right? Uh, right it's or the like third book. Yeah. It's the third book technically in the series. Um, but I thought that at the beginning uh, it does a pretty decent job of cueing you in as to what you might have missed of import to be able to like just dive into this story. So for the record, as somebody that did not read the first two books, I did jump straight into this one and had no problem understanding. Mm-hmm. what I needed to understand. And they are but, all kind of yeah. designed to be not only part of a bigger whole, but also self-contained yeah. on their own. Because technically it's three books, right? The the lo- Lost... Oh, I'm not going to get it right. Yeah, The Lost Lands of the Witch World is three books, each one told from the perspective of one of the three... Siblings. Triplets. Yeah, triplets. It's like siblings. Yeah, yeah, right. One of the triplets. Yeah. Which is interesting because my understanding is the first two books are not told from a first-person perspective. No, They're told from right. a third-person perspective. Um, so this was a major shift in just how she was telling the story, mm-hmm. um, which some people liked and some people didn't. But so 
I think it's important to note, um, and one of the big things that that introductory essay talked about is when she was publishing this book, she did publish him under a moniker of a man's name. Surprise, mm-hmm. surprise. But more importantly, it was published as science fiction mm-hmm. because fantasy was not a genre that was popular mm-hmm. or even people even bought or people even thought people would buy. Um, right. We didn't have. There was no Lord of the Rings or Hobbit. Uh, there wasn't like a whole lot to preface like real fantasy. And so it um, one of the cool things that her introduction does is provides the original marketing copy from the back of the books. Um, here, let me see if I can read one for you. Because uh, I, I marked him because I thought they were so interesting about how the books were actually pitched. Yeah, okay. So here's, this is um, this is actually for, uh, I believe this is for Web of Witch World, not, but I, I'll read you one and just, because, um, wait, do I have the one for this game? Okay, it doesn't matter. Simon Tregarth, whose own earthly prowess had won him a throne and a witch wife in an alien world, knew that both triumphs were precarious as long as the super science of the colder held a foothold on that planet. Does that sound like fantasy to you? No, that's sci-fi, y'all. Right. And his premonitions were right when those invaders from another dimension made their final diabolical strike for total conquest. Andrew uh, Andre Norton's Web of the Witch World is a terrific novel of science fiction marvel, otherworldly co- color, and sword and sorcery action that will thrill and delight every reader. So every one of her books were put out as science fiction, which yeah. now is not necessarily the case. So I just thought that was a... Just something to note of like when she started writing this series, right? And of course, the the one that that we read, um, the later books came a lot later. Um, but she didn't get to write like it wasn't even pitched as as anything but science fiction. Mm-hmm. So the first, you know, I just think it's a very interesting struggle that she had to go through just to get her stuff published. It is, although one bit of um, one one thing I would add to that potentially is I don't think. The division between what we call science fiction and fantasy now was a division that existed in 1965 when this book came out. I think all of that stuff kind of fell under the umbrella of science fiction. And I think it's more when when Dungeons and Dragons really gained its foothold in the market and became really popular that that division of no, that's fantasy, that's not science fiction, yep. and vice versa, really, like that line in yep. the sand really got drawn. Right. It's it's actually interesting because you know, right? We've heard this before. So much of the 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 fantasy fear, the fantasy scare, came out of the like the deep puritanism that is built into our country. Right. The the kind of Christianity, the the fantasy scare of D and D, the big devil push. Right. Which is very interesting because. Early on, when we were so afraid of fantasy and magic, and that was the devil's work, and blah blah blah, that's not how they felt about science fiction, right? Because it's progress, right? Science, it's, it's, it was progress. That was yeah, like, oh, right. look at us, we're we're gonna be the Jetsons, y'all, uh, <laughs> right? And so, um, you know, so like it was okay. And what's been interesting is actually the shift in that mentality. Now, now, uh, Dot, you bring up something interesting, which is, uh, I mean, Andre Norton did work on books that are uh, uh, undeniably science fiction, and. Um, uh, and you're talking about going back and reading the first two two books in the mm-hmm. series. And those were a little bit, they did have more like obviously scientific uh, tropes. I mean, here you still have the yeah. needle guns and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, Jeff, on our previous shows, we and talked about. And the force about, whip. Right. Uh, which may yes, or may not yes. be scientific. But yeah, exactly. Uh, but there was definitely stuff like, you know, the, the needle guns. There was other stuff that was clearly more science, mm-hmm. science fiction. And it, and it, my, it kind of dwindles, right? right. To the, uh, she talks about that. Like she uses less and less of that. Right. I guess throughout <laughs> this whole along. series, right? She becomes more and more fantasy. And I'm wondering if there's two things going on here. One, she's obviously talking about a lot of very important things about the role, uh, the relationship between the sexes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yep. um, 
And so that she felt that it was no longer necessary to talk about these science fiction trappings to talk to tell that story. Right. The other thing is, yeah. I wonder if also, um, basically, there was also that very idea of like, uh, you know, with Philip K. Dick and all that science fiction became much more, um, uh, what's the word? Um, imagine, well, not imaginative is not the right, I don't want to use that right word, but it's much more sort of alternative, uh, whereas there was yes. a hard science fiction thing. And that was like, okay, that's a guy thing. Girl cooties can't get on our hard science fiction, right? <laughs> right? Yeah, and, says Dot, who's read Narromancer 10 times. Right, but I mean, I, I, that was the, the, the feeling in the industry is what I'm saying, or yeah. maybe yeah, in, no, the fan, absolutely. in the fandom. And mm-hmm. so maybe that she felt that um, to tell the stories that she wanted to tell, um, she it was easier to sort of move into the realm of fantasy than to stay mm-hmm. in the realm of quote unquote hard science fiction. Yeah. I mean, let's be real. One of her major, she made, she did such a great job of making, and you know, she's a woman, so I hope she would, but made such an impact of how you write female characters in science fiction and fantasy. Right. Um, even from the first two books, which, you know, again, I've only read about. Um, and then in this one, we're, even I remember at the top of the book, uh, they the brothers go to save her, right? They get, they're going to go like go plan to save her and blah 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 blah. And one of the brothers is like, "Don't underestimate her; mm-hmm. she's going to be just fine." And the moment where you watch a male character stop another male character to remind him that he doesn't need to white knight his sister is a huge moment for any woman reading a book. Mm-hmm. Especially in 1965. Especially in 1965, that's like, oh, wow. Right? Um, the it, it was so interesting. The Because when she was dropping the first set round of books, we're talking about this is pre-bra burning, y'all. Right. We're not even to the point of having that kind of liberation. We're just starting to talk about women's rights in like a larger way. Right. Um, and a lot of women actually are super smart at this point, are required to go to college and become educated, and then they become housewives. Mm-hmm. So what was happening is you were getting housewives who were reading science fiction for the first time, wrapped up in fantasy that was led by well-written, strong female protagonist that they related with. They related with the idea that they don't need to be saved. Because mm-hmm. they manage a family and 50,000 things why only their husband goes to work, right? And so, like, I think there is something really, really spectacular. Again, y'all should read this intro essay. It was just phenomenal um, because she lays a lot of it out. And she talks about being a small girl from, like, Indiana, I think, mm-hmm. and realizing later on after she become obsessed with these books that it was a female writer mm-hmm. and what that meant to her as somebody that would eventually become a female fantasy writer. Um it was rather moving, actually. Now, of course, there's a lot of other things that we could talk about. Like I said, there are a lot of things that don't always age well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think some of her gender politics are very dated because that was what was being talked about then, the separation of male to female. Right, now, it's still very binary. The, the, right. Now, we we have a spectrum of how we talk about gender, um, right? And and a lot of other things, right? The, the use of rape as a trope in fantasy has been there for a very long time, and I hate it, uh, right? And it's just a part of, of the book, right? Of powers being taken, of women's power being taken from them. And so how I think how you view topics like that is also really important. But looking at it for when it was being published, it was revolutionary Mm -hmm. and to even think that this female writer who is doing such revolutionary writing for a a genre we didn't even know existed yet fantasy wasn't really even a thing right right 
is is huge and should not be overlooked. And she had to do it without telling people who she was, mm-hmm. which yeah, I think is almost she, sad in its own right. And she was also doing it in a way that was still allowing for her to operate within that world. Mm-hmm. And she's she's both um, um, really challenging the norms, but doing it in a way that also doesn't, um, I think alienate the the fan base that was reading it at the time either yes mm-hmm. yes um it's interesting because my copy is from 1972 and i think by that point she must have been such a success and there was such, enough of a sea change in the society i mean like obviously the mm-hmm. pill came around in what 63 early yes, 60s six, right? 63 yeah, 65 right. uh so by 72 um people knew that she was andre norton a woman because right here in the inside mm-hmm. cover blurb it says andre norton born alice mary norton it's one of the fastest selling and most appreciated authors of science fiction. Well, this will say science fiction, not fantasy yet. Yep. Um, uh-huh. It seems to be characters of the few women who write in this field that as a rule, they are very good at it. Uh, which again, <laughs> it's the exceptional. Great. Like, perfect. Have- <laughs> Pat on the back, everybody. We're good at it. Right. <laughs> and Andre Norton is certainly one of the very best uh, on and on. Uh, it's, it's good, though. It's interesting. Uh, but it's interesting that in that seven years. Uh, she is, uh, sells sufficiently well. People are like, okay, she'd come out from behind the curtain, so to speak, yep. but she's yeah, still... Yeah, she had, she had kind of been able to take Andre and say, hey, no, I'm actually Andre. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I also <laughs> want to throw out, throw out something, too, just in case any of our listeners are just, like, screaming at, the, at, at their podcasting device right now, too, is that The Lord of the Rings was published in the 1950s, so this isn't before The Lord of the Rings was published, but it was before The Lord of the Rings got hugely popular, because The Lord of the Rings got hugely popular in the U.S. kind of around the, US, the hippie much, movement. much, later. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that would have that right. been the late because 60s, Because it was early okay 70s. to read those things, right? Which would have been part of this movement as well. And so, like, exactly. yeah, I think there's, like, there's, like, this strange period of time right about the 60s where like everything's shifting mentalities the gender dynamic is changing yep. how women talk about themselves the rights that they're getting um and uh, again i str- i struggle because he didn't have any female characters um in any of his books right but yeah they didn't really become popular that's not fair we- i think there were two <laughs> right. oh, might be, might be. here let me go read the Cimmerillion to make myself feel better um, uh so but yeah so like i, I think uh just the way that she was writing like a group of witches. Y'all, witches are not things that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Witches were women that were had bricks tied to their feet and thrown in the river. Mm-hmm. Witches were pe- were women that we burned, right? Um, I've been doing a lot of research on witches in the way, specifically, I, I use them in games because I think we have a lot of misconceptions based on <laughs> poor academics and uh, the teachings of witches. The start of witch hunts and things came from women that were doing men's jobs. Mm. Most beer was brewed by women and men wanted to take that over because it was becoming right. Women in like monasteries, medicine, things that would soon become men's jobs. They took from women and called them witches. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, you can add the like high Puritan ideals on top of that. And that makes a whole other thing. Right. But yeah. I think that that there's we couldn't talk about groups of witches. We just didn't talk about witches, y'all, right. because that was something that was unaccepted. And she has an entire mass powerful group of all women called witches. Yeah. In the 60s. Right. Yeah. Right. And this is uh, it's interesting. You talk about this uh, I mean, just as a tangent. So you have this thing where they're masculinizing, masculinizing uh, feminine, tradi- uh, uh, feminine professions. Yes. And something that happened sort of in reverse. So the Chinese, uh, the initial Chinese immigrants came over here to work on the railroads and were gold miners. Uh, but once that sort of capped uh, and, you know, and the white uh, supremacy was striking back, 
Chinese had to go into feminized jobs of running laundries, opening yes. restaurants, doing that kind of stuff, right? So it's the reverse. Yep. So could we push? I mean, yeah, it's it's so interesting the way we reverse roles like that ahead of over time. I mean, even when, um, you know, I used to do a lot of um, from Georgia. So the Cherokee are a large part of our history here and the the movement of the Native Americans out of Georgia West. Um, but uh, one of the things that we learned is like when they landed, one of the things they like the Native Americans here in Georgia farming and hunting were the females jobs. Hmm. And the idea of the woman being at home and those jobs going to men was entirely placed on their society when all the, the white men came over and said, this is wrong. Why why is she tending your farm? You should be tending your farm. Let me put my ideals on you. And so I think it's just really interesting that she was so brave. She was so brave to be like, I'm going to I'm going to make a whole group of witches and they're going to be powerful enough to move mountains. Right. Mm-hmm. And. But also not, she's also interesting because she's also still recognizing that power brings a certain amount of cynicism to it. So the, the whole witches yes. council, who we never actually encounter in this book, we only sort of see them at a distance, are very vested in their idea of power. And so even this uh, more interesting idea that um, Kathia and, and her, her two brothers have a different sort of power is very threatening to them, right? And so yep. they have to try to uh, subsume her. Right, subsume Kathia, and and, yep. and by separating her from the family, um, right, like taking her from the thing that makes her wholesome or like the best version of herself. Right, you know? and I would have to imagine because I know that Andre Norton again was a librarian, do all this. She was aware of things like um, what was happening with Native Americans, where they were being you know raised yes. as white, essentially, and going to you know. Yeah, she had a lot of the yeah. the essay talks about that yeah. how she had a lot of other books, and she was um, she was doing a lot with bringing in other cultures and trying to bring awareness uh to a lot of the lost cultures here in america especially at that time um you know it's interesting i was trying to think of another um i mean if we game of thrones is so far down the line but dune was published in 65 Mm -hmm. and it had a group of witches the bene gesserits Mm -hmm. the bene gesserit witch right um but that was after her publishing of of like the first two which of the first two correct, books. Yeah, correct, yeah. So that's that's very interesting. Um because I for me, the first time I had come across some somebody using the word witch so openly in that regard and like a group of powerful witches that kind of skirted the line between being good and bad. Like their presence was necessary for balance, but that doesn't make them good. Right. Um was was the Bene Gesserit which which is in Dune. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's very interesting, which would have been after her pub- her, her original publishing date. Mm-hmm. Although we do book. also see that in Oz, like there's like the good witches and the bad witches, but the, but those are very uh, binary, good, bad, black, white. Yeah, which yeah, and even then, it's not like a coven of witches. It's not right. like a huge a bunch of them. It's like oh, you get the wicked witch of the west and the wicked witch of the east. And, yeah, there's four. Right. You know, right. you know, there's four. Uh, only the four directions. Right. right? I mean, that's uh, a very important thing that you talk about. It's the collective power of womankind yeah. is in this book, yeah. right? Yeah. For good or for evil, there's a collective power, which is Very in other point. cases, people are exceptions, right? The witches. Yeah. And it's nice because she also doesn't like Mary Sue it, where like she like makes them like so super moral. Like they've also right. got the same problems that anybody else has as well. Like they've got their own unique struggles. They've got their yep. own unique powers, but they're also like, yeah, they've got their own issues too. Right. Yeah, they got their own issues. They don't feel they don't feel all there's just so many things, right? The way that the women use each other, I think, was a very interesting like perspective, right? Because as a woman, women are horrible to other women. Uh, it's a thing that we learn to either overcome uh, or become better than, right? Because we are built in a misogynist society, which tells us that 
we have to find our place in a misogynist society, which means not oftentimes are we kind to each other. So this idea that they would take a young girl, uh, right? That that um, there's just there's so many interesting things right. about they, that perspective. And they look down on Ang Hart, who is their nurse, yes. who basically basically is their is their mother, real mother and parent, because Jay the Lee, real yes, right? yes. And so Ang Hart is a uh, you know from the Falconers, right? Is that right? She's from the Falconers. The Falcon, yeah, she's from the Falconers. Which she is awesome. ran. Right, and the Falconers, yeah. which is incredibly misogynistic, bifurcated society, it, and you'll yes. see more of the Falconers in the first two books. So she yes. escapes yeah, the Falconers, and then she raises these three children essentially as their foster parent from the very beginning. And uh, it's interesting because the Falconers and the Witches of Escarp actually have this interesting alliance because they are so different from one another. Yes, um, but they both kind of need each other to survive, so they have this very uneasy alliance with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there's certain like certain times when you see extremists, they go so far that they can recognize the extremism in each other. And they're like, OK, I recognize that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, you, you see it all the time on Twitter and stuff like that. People who are just like allegedly very far in this part of the spectrum and allegedly very far in the spectrum. But they're united in their extremism against <laughs> you know, other people. Sure, yeah. sure. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. It's difficult because I struggle. I personally struggle with the like super masculine group but i'm like okay that's your perspective now because you have vocabulary to talk about this you're radically self-expressive like uh all of the things and so but i think if we look at when she was publishing all the things that she was up against right um so if lord of the rings was published in the 50s this was what 12 years later 14 her first book was 14 years later or something so even then when we talk about the length of time it takes to write a book that ain't nothing uh in the grand scheme of things so these are these things are coming out on top of each other and really these books don't have a place Mm -hmm. they they are science fiction because that is what we could categorize them as but what they actually become is fantasy Mm -hmm. they create this period of time was like in the midst of creating a brand new genre uh that people could talk about so much in fact by the 70s it was inspiring us to paint scenes like i've joked about earlier on the side of our bands Mm -hmm. it became an art style um we have rock and roll music about it right right yep um 100 it's uh I think it 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 there's something about fantasy out of sci-fi because I do you mentioned this earlier I do think sometimes science fiction and the science of science fiction can be a barrier for a lot of people that want to read science fiction mm-hmm. right um and so um especially because there was a period of time where you had hyper realistic sci-fi where like pages and pages were just dedicated to the science of the chemistry of like how do we pump oxygen into a spaceship you know what I'm saying right. like trying to sort out the actual science of science fiction um but fantasy took out this science and said, this is something that we have no precedence for. So let's talk about how to make magic magic. Right. It's not just psionic, right? So most of magic that we had seen before, that was all mental things, the control of stuff. That we're talking about like manifesting of stuff, which was like a new concept for magic uh, and the way we viewed magic. And so I just think it is a very interesting set of books that are coming out in a very important pivotal time written by a woman which is really unheard of right do you think uh you just made me think of something and both from when you were talking about when you first started playing like games and it was georgia tech guys and then you just talked about hard mm-hmm. science fiction so for better or for worse sort of very crunchy hard science is sort of almost like a gendered barrier but obviously there are a lot of really really capable women uh scientists mathematicians mm-hmm. business people um are they sort of almost being convinced that they can't do those things? And and so they're, that, they're creating a bender for themselves. Yeah. The idea of high science was out of most women's reach at the time. Right. Now, now I want nothing more than a whole rocket ship full of women shooting off to the moon. You know what I'm saying? And that's <laughs> something that we can actually have right. uh, because we allow women to have those moments where they can 
finish that degree or they can go on and get their extreme sciences. Um, but I think at the time it wasn't really available. And so much of it was focused on so much of science fiction, hard sci-fi right. was focused at a different audience. It was not focused on women. This book had romance and or well, the first two books, romance and 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 sexy times right. and like things that um, I wouldn't say just women could connect with, but things that weren't hard science. Right. It was about family, about finding a man who didn't take something from you. Mm-hmm. Because that was the whole point of the of their love, right? The their parents' love, the triplets' parents' love was that he didn't take anything from her. When they made love, it took nothing. And instead they build something totally new and unique and beautiful. And from it came these three children, yeah. which of course is the prompt for this book. And so there was something about it that is just innately feminine. Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's so interesting because she published it originally under a man's mm-hmm. name. Um until I wonder when I wonder when that switched when people when she made the out to say no I'm not a man. I, I don't think there was like a I mean it's hard to say that there was a thing I think that probably people who were like avid readers kind of knew that she was kind of figured it kind out kind of figured it out yeah, and, and knew, it just kind and of people started, in the industry, yeah people in the industry probably knew and then yeah just I think like her publishers knew and then it just kind of became like one of those like pieces of in knowledge that like it's like an easter egg <laughs> exactly exactly it's like you're probably reading andre norton for a little while before you read somewhere or found out that andre norton was a woman okay y'all i found the name of that book and this is really interesting so it's called the three stigmata of Par- palmer, palmer eldridge, eldridge. Okay, right i was gonna mention that okay all right um this is the name of that book that book in 65, when it was published, won the Nebula Award. He was nominated for the Nebula Award for that book in 65, which would have been just a few. It, that was the same year Dune was published and a bunch of other stuff. But that's the one where they like go to Mars and they're living in uh, basically uh, organized captivity. Um, yeah. Check it out. There cool. You go. Thank Na- you. 1965. Thank you. Yeah. I told you. I told you I would find yep, it. Yep, yep. <laughs> and it's even more relevant than I thought it was. <laughs> All around the same time. It's funny because I was just reading about that book last night, although I have not yet read really? it. Really? Yeah. I, 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 I highly actually it, the Three Sigmata, Palmer Eldritch, Ubik, and Man in the High Castle, and then one more all come in like a four set novella series of his. That's actually how I read them all first. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a war nerd. Um, so I, I love war history. So Man in the High Castle was kind of like, whoa. Right. <laughs> like the first time I read it, I was like, whoa, my mind is blown. Um, I'm really glad this is not the timeline I'm actually living. Right. Um, but but the rest of those books, the rest of those books were a little less like historically based. And phew, right. man, I remember uh, like zooming through that series of those four right. uh novels together right. man oh man that's the reason then you would like doing of course too of because of the, the war nerd aspect of it right yeah of course right. right yeah uh i mean i'll be honest if i had to if i had to pick between lord of the rings and dune i i actually lean a little heavier towards dune not the hobbit the hobbit is super duper special to me that's a whole other thing um right uh but uh i, I actually i'll share with y'all why so when when i was a kid i think i read the hobbit i was eight the first time I tried uh, to read it. And then I reread it much later on. But I remember Gollum so very specifically because I, at the time I was on a lot of chemotherapy. So I was very thin. I had lost all my hair. I had just a few sprigs out the top. I was also a kid. So I had lost my teeth because oh, my baby, baby teeth, teeth were coming back in. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And all this kind of so stuff. And I remember relating with Gollum so much and the description that was given in the book of like this thing that everybody thought was so ugly and nobody loved. And he had no teeth and he was thin and pale uh, and mm. nobody wanted him around and f- 
and, and, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's, doesn't that just break your heart? Yes. And so, and I remember, I remember reading this, and and he, but he was actually really smart, and he had this little like poetry off right. <laughs> uh, with Bilbo, and like I just related with Gollum so so much. So the Hobbit is is very personal to me on like oh, so many other <laughs> spectrums. But like if I had to pick between my two like big war history. Trilogy, like, well, I guess Dune is no longer a trilogy. It's a lot bigger than that. But, like, Dune would have been. I just, there's just something about that book that really, um, God, it just really inspired me on, like, this other level. Well, we've gotten so deep into amazing things. We have a little bit of time to talk about this book just as gaming. So is there any thoughts yeah. you have, like, about things you could steal or how it influenced D&D or, or what thoughts um, that you have there? I love the idea that there's something East that everybody's forgotten about. Mm -hmm. I just love that idea. I love that idea that your adventure is not actually here and the things that we know. Uh, that was something in, for this book that I was like, it's not that's something we haven't seen before, right? Like we, um, Game of Thrones questions like what is East, right? right. Like that's Arya's whole thing, right? She goes East. But like there was something about this book and the twin and the twin or the triplets bringing it well i say the boys bringing it up and being like this is where we have to go because everybody else has forgotten about it and then one of the the smart one going but why did they forget about it yeah they forgot about it because the witches are trying to cover up something like it was just such an interesting hook for me mm -hmm. right because i think as a gm we're always looking for good hooks how do we hook our players into the story how do we get them driven to buy in right to lean in as their characters and want the thing and i think for these three characters we saw that mm -hmm. this idea of one they're hot they're very wanted mm -hmm. right the struggle with their relationship with their actual parents um is and then and then this idea of like where do we run when the witches can see us everywhere where they can't see us in the place that they desperately want to forget? Yeah. Uh, and that, that journey of like, of, 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 of getting their sister and then crossing the mountains. is just a really great hook. Mm -hmm. It's just a really great hook. And it's really amazing how like these different authors keep taking and building upon the things that they've gotten from other authors. And we're talking about mm -hmm. how like Mercedes mm -hmm. Lackey has taken from, um, from Andre Norton. But um, have you read anything by Lord Dunsany? I have not. And he wrote this fantastic book called The King of Elfland's Daughter, which is a book that we covered on here. And the, and Hoy, when was that written? The 1930s? Um, I want to say like 1925 or so, but I could be wrong. Oh, okay. wow. Yeah. And in it, um, there is this, and, I, and it might actually even be to the East, but I forget. But there's like, um, beyond the fields we know, um, and, and there's this, there's this, there's this direction where like nobody is willing or able to look. And when you ask them about it, they don't see it. They're confused. They don't understand what you're talking about. And, and the direction that you need to go in that nobody is aware of is this veil between, uh, the fields that we know and Elfland. And it's interesting that it seems that perhaps Andre Norton has taken that idea and expanded mm. upon that in this universe. Right. Cause I mean, clearly these characters could be elves or even teeth tieflings because they've got horns mm -hmm. right <laughs> but, but well, they are and, and also they, they are, talk about how like these are the creatures of legend like right. there's the whole thing about how like these are the people who like you know will right. will, will, will pay a, a young mother um in gold and something else in order for them to raise their their right. i thought very much elf. i also thought like very much like the D, &D druid because they have to be in balance they're kind of like true yes. neutral yes right they can't that's the uh, you know that was actually some sometimes druids don't get the best rap and everybody always does like leave them out because everybody's like ah, druids i love <laughs> druids they're like having you're like having your like you know gorilla hippie traveling on with you but i i love druids yeah. and the reason i love druids is because their entire build is based off balance mm -hmm. 
right? My job, most of the time, Druids are totally neutral because our job is to rebalance the world in some way. And so I actually found that idea of them like going to the other side, the really deep ties into um, kind of old school concept of Fae. Mm -hmm. When they got to these these, like, she connects uh, with these not really human, but kind of earthbound creatures Mm -hmm. of the forest or of this land, uh, right? That take humans to care for their young. Uh, there's this very kind of fey mentality there that comes out of, yeah, I, I, um, just really, I really liked, I really liked the way that she set that up and she set it up very early, really, because the majority of the book takes place over the mountain. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, over the mountains, uh, but yeah, on the other side, you know, and so, uh, the, the rescue and all of that is, is like the top, uh, of, of, of their big journey. And so it's really interesting to see them on the other side. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think, Jeff, that it ties into both Lord Dunsany and just like a deeper mythological theme of, as you say, mm-hmm. the Fae of, um, and she's not literally calling it, but uh, but she's drawing on those themes, right? And there's these yeah, magical absolutely. creatures that can sort of talk to you. That's a very common thing in fairy tales, right? Like the this not unicorn unicorn that he's riding on, right? <laughs> that, that can talk to him, right? Um, so she's like very smart about taking these things that are there, but not making it, that thing, obviously, it's like that thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, not making it that thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you believe in the collective conscious, it's very interesting that all of these authors, Norton, and you know everyone that we've talked about right here in this period of time, are all kind of hinting and writing the same things. Because the fact of the matter is, unless you're reading them all as they're being published, you can't uh, actually. What happens is this group of people become what we all draw from. Right. Right. And like pull and pull from. But uh, it's very interesting that their collective conscious is writing a lot of the same things, the way that we use mountains and landmarks, the way that we uh, or the way that um, uh, they're writing this idea of the Fae being this other, the elves being an other. Um, Yeah, just very, very interesting Um, that maybe all of the collective conscious of our soon to be fantasy writers were like churning and burning at the same time. Oh, definitely. Yeah. We are running out of time, but do you have any last? I mean, you've got like just a, such a well of thoughts, but do you have any last thought you want to leave us with about this book? <sighs> yes, uh, I will say this for you, fantasy writers out there, and for those of you that do a lot of um, TTRPG, uh, take notes as to how to write female characters from this. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, um, there's another writer that I used to enjoy reading a lot of, Pierce Anthony, who was a 70, started in the 70s. Uh, he wrote the Xanath series. Um, his first couple books were great, but um, it was a slow dive into like really poor writing of female characters. And so I think sometimes when we make our NPCs, uh, when we deal uh, with groups of witches, uh, it's very easy to fall into really bad habits. And so like I challenge you to lean in uh, and uh, do better, right? If you have a question about a female character, ask a female in your life mm-hmm. or Somebody not on, like, the usual uh, ends of the spectrum uh, about how something lands. Like, I think it's what makes this book so rich is the way that it doesn't feel, for me, like a man wrote it, and to how I can buy into the women character as believable and not there to support the men, that it is actually also their story. And so um, I just leave you all with that little nugget. Right. And that is amazing, considering that the narrator is actually a male in this book too yeah yes in this case yeah Yeah. well yeah um you know because each book eventually gets narrated but yeah i i totally agree it's just it's just really really well done uh and so for me i think uh i encourage everybody to to read it to see that in the making um so that you can be more cognizant of it as you create 
better, more diverse, and comfortable worlds for your players. I would also add to that, those of you who are fantasy RPG artists, I would also encourage you to look at, um, if when you're, when you're looking for your inspiration for your art, I would encourage you to look at female athletes and not Victoria's Secret models. There you go. Yes, thank you. <laughs> As somebody that actually swings a broadsword, you can't do it with the statue of a Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dot, where can people find you and your works? Or, uh, you know, yeah. What's the best way to look for yeah, you? You can find me. Pick your social media of choice. I'm little red dot, little underscore red underscore dot. My Twitch channel uh, right now, which is on a little bit of a vacation just because I'm producing in so many other places like the Pod by Night uh, VTM uh, podcast show that you can check me out on. You can check me out, of course, over on Cobalt Press where I'm part of a lot of what they do. We have a, a weekly interview show. If you just want to come out and see people in the industry, we talk about Cobalt Press and their use for products at the table. And sometimes we do weird things like I'll just crack something open. So come check me out. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you want some sci-fi, I run a lot of sci-fi campaigns. In fact, I'm running two, an Aliens game and a... Uh, Coriolis game, which is, I call it um, Arabian Nights in Space, but basically it's a sci-fi game over on Unmade Gaming's network. So come check me out if you want to come out of fantasy and get your sci-fi. Very cool. Nice. Very cool. And is there anything that you want to pitch that's not under NDA? That's, <laughs> that's not under, under NDA. Uh, well, uh, I am going to have, I mentioned the Rickety Stick show, so that's coming this summer. So just keep your ears out. It'll be a little like lighthearted, but also kind of dark edges uh it should be kind of weird and and cool so that'll be coming and um i am gonna have an all-female pirate adventure coming to cobalt press Ooh, in the summer cool. so if you want to come uh you know swashbuckle uh with the the best uh of us uh, i've got a whole bunch of, of lady streamers that are going to come swashbuckle which is, should be pretty fun and then uh yeah i've got a big announcement so if nothing else stay tuned to my stuff because when i can make the nda announcements uh, trust me i will because it's um it's very exciting, y'all. I'm I'm uh I'm rather honored to be writing for this title. So um very exciting. Yay! There you go. It's very exciting. All right. Uh we have to do our four picks, right? This is this week my four, my four picks before we go. Uh yes. Well, real, real quick, just so everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, our patrons are now able to vote on which titles we're going to be covering. So today, Hoy is going to be revealing the four candidates for episode 108. Oh, yep. Okay, so my theme, very loosely, is Bad Messiahs. All right? So, um, okay. all right, so let me just ask, is Three Stigmata Palmer Elders, does that have a Messiah theme? Because I was reading about it, it was potentially one. The, if it's not, then I'm gonna, uh, I'll put it on the list for another pot- time. Potentially, you could add, you could, you could add that. Uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, technically, some would say Dune has a Messiah theme. Well, Dune was on the list. Oh, so. okay. Look at this. This is curated just for Dot. You did this for All me. All right, it is. Okay, so we'll do Philip K. Dick, the Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldritch, Frank Herbert, Dune, Gene Wolfe, Shadow of the Torturer, or Roger Zelazny's Lord of Light. And the theme wow. is Bad Messiahs. Okay, I hate to pit them all wow. against each other, but only one Messiah can win. Yeah. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Only That's the worst fantastic. will survive. Well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And I would also like to give a shout out to our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Uh, not only do our patrons get to vote on what episodes that we'll be covering, starting with episode 101, uh, that, that's a new thing that we're doing, but also our patrons are able to join us with our patron-only patron book clubs that happen before we record our episodes with our special guests. So we would like to thank Andrew Styers for showing up and Thanks. joining us for that patron book club today. Also, we want to give a shout out to a few of our patrons. Thank you to Eric Hicks, Joseph Hoopman, Stanley Razudski, Daniel Bishop, By Grinstow, Noah Green, 
Lucio Nothlich Pimentel, Jeremy Harper, CY, and Eric Hallstrom. Thank you all so much for your support. And coming up, our next two episodes, episodes 99 and 100, 99 will be on Lord Dunsany's Don Rodriguez, Chronicles of Shadow Valley. And episode 100 will be Edgar Rice Burroughs' Land of Terror. All right. Uh, if you like us, please rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter at, at, at appendix underscore N, or you can email us at appendix N bookclub at gmail.com thank you dot as always we have the best guests thanks, and thanks. <laughs> yeah it's been such a, it's been such an honor having you on thank you <laughs> all right see you in the stacks everybody read on the library is closed